Hello again, everyone. Are we good back there? Thank you for dealing with our set change here. This is a, a new thing for Cato. We like to try new things every once in a while. Comfy but, chairs. Yes, comfy chairs. Comfy chairs and, and, and no, no table to block you from the audience. So um, this is the final part of our program, aside from our reception, of course, later tonight. But we are going to be doing a roundtable discussion asking the question, should the Fed be subject to a monetary rule? Um, I am delighted to have with us a wonderful group of speakers here to discuss this issue. We have Jeff Lacker, who is the Distinguished Professor in the Department of Economics at Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, of course, he led the Richmond Fed for 13 years, uh, where he established it as one of the leading research banks in the Federal Reserve System. We're really grateful for the research that he was able to conduct there. Then we have uh, Scott Sumner, who is a senior fellow in the Ralph G. Hawtrey Chair of Monetary Policy at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He's also one of the faculty on one of our new programs called Alternative Money University, uh, dedicated to educating 30 bright students in monetary economics. So we're really grateful for his service this past summer. Shameless plug, we're now accepting applications, so if you know bright young students, please point them our way. Uh, then we have Jeff Frankel, who is, uh, <coughs> is the James W. Harple Professor of Capital Formation and Growth at Harvard's Kennedy School. He also serves on the NBER co Committee for uh, Dating Business Cycles. And previously, he served on the Council of Economic Advisors. He's also been traveling a lot in the last three weeks from Ecuador um, and DC and then back up, uh, up north. So uh, we're delighted he's been able to be with us today. Maybe he brought the snowy weather to us, but it was, it's been a beautiful day. Um, and then we have John Allison, who is professor of practice at Wake Forest. He was CEO and BB&T, uh, of, of BB&T for two decades. And uh, he also served as president of the Cato Institute. And while there, he established our Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. I still get tongue-tied on it. Uh, but I'm really grateful for him having done that. It's been one of the preeminent free market forces um, talking about monetary policy in the city. So I'm grateful for your leadership on that. So uh, before we begin today, um, Oh, well, thank you all for being with us today. Uh, we're going to be, there's been a lot of discussion about rules uh, versus discretion in the monetary policy realm, in the academy, in Congress, and uh, where do we want to put rules and discretion in the formulation of monetary policy? This is actually a, a long-standing debate. This isn't something that's just been around since the 60s and 70s with um, uh, Kidland and Prescott, which we'll get into. But in fact, Adam Smith wrote in Wealth of Nations, the first economic screed, if you want to term it that, uh, did say that a well-regulated paper money could improve economic growth and stability of even pure commodity, of a pure commodity standard. So there's, this is a long-standing conversation about how much discretion versus how much we should have rules in place when it comes to our money. And so, of course, we've been talking about this a lot since the financial crisis. Um, and so I think we're going to be getting into more of that today. But before we get into a pure rules versus discretion, which I do want to get there, I want to take a step back and remind ourselves, as some of the panelists earlier today have done, um, what is it? What are the goals of monetary policy such that we would want either discretion or rules? What um, what, what is the aim for monetary policy? Scott, you've done a lot of work um, thinking about sort of what the, a, an objective for monetary policy should be. Okay, yeah. so there's a lot of potential objectives, and I think the easiest way to explain it is to start with the fact that many central banks have a two percent inflation target as a goal or objective of monetary policy. And it's useful at this point to uh, also highlight that the term rule is used in two different ways in monetary policy. 
There's sort of a targeting rule like a 2% inflation target, which you can think of as sort of the goal of monetary policy that's stated in a very clear way. Then there's another way uh, monetary rules are used, and that is an instrument rule. The most famous would be the Taylor rule, which is sort of a mathematical formula for adjusting interest rates in a way that is most likely to hit whatever the goal of policy is. So uh, in terms of what the goal should be, um, you have to start with some sort of policy in terms of nominal aggregates. Now you could do that by default. You could have, say, an unregulated gold standard. Just define the dollar as a certain weight of gold. Let the market for gold determine the value of money. Um, if you go to a fiat money system, as we gradually did over time, then once you get there, by default, the central bank is going to be determining the value of money and all nominal aggregates in the economy. Now, it may be they don't know initially they're doing that. I think that was the case from the 60s through the early 80s, and we had a lot of instability. As they discovered that they couldn't just sort of let the prices float around without any sort of rule, they did start to move in the direction of a rule, and we, we have this 2% inflation rule today, but we also have other parts of the dual mandate. So I would just conclude by saying one way of thinking about rules that I think is helpful for me at least, is it's not an either or, but to some degree it's a, a matter of degree. You can have an almost completely ruleless system like we had in the 70s. You can have what we have today with the 2% inflation target, but other goals as well. And as you get more rule-like, one way of thinking about that is that as you become more rule-like, it becomes more and more apparent ex post whether previous policy was too expansionary or too contractionary. If everybody agrees that policy was too expansionary or too contractionary relative to the rule, then you have a clear targeting rule. If even ex post there's disagreement about whether last year or two years ago was too expansionary or too contractionary, then you have a more vague or indistinct <clears throat> targeting rule. So I think it's a matter of degree, but uh, fundamentally you're determining the path of nominal aggregates and you may have other goals like smoothing out <coughs> employment fluctuations uh, as well as that primary goal. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Now, Jeff, um, well, I've got two Jeffs here. Uh, it reminds me of my JEC days where uh, uh, the ranking member had two Jeff economists, and he would say, bring me my Jeffs. So I have two Jeffs, but I will try to refer Jeff's to you as, as wonderful, wonderful. I've got, I'll call you Lacker and Frankel. Is that okay? That's good. So, um, Lacker, you've been... Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, could, you could call him. Um, respond to a lot of things. <laughs> Uh, you've done some work, of course, um, related to discretion versus rules in a more academic setting. Can you talk yeah. us through what are some of these academic arguments for why we would want rules over discretion? Well, um, you know, when you think about it, you, you think right away about, as you mentioned, the seminal contribution of Finn Kinlan and Edward Prescott in the late 1970s, uh, work that was recognized by the Nobel Prize Committee in um, 2004. Um, they uh, describe and analyze two polar opposite regimes. One you could call pure discretion in which um, in each period the policymaker re-optimizes ignoring the past um, and choosing for, from then on what uh, does best from the point of view of their objective function. The other you might call pure commitment is one in which uh, the policymaker at the beginning of time chooses a pattern of behavior that's going to hold all the time in the future and is able to bind themselves, somehow commit, somehow avoid the temptation, somehow forego 
uh, the opportunity to later on re-optimize, even if re-optimizing later would, from that point of view on, onward, be better for their objective function. And um, when I think about Fed policymaking, which I participated in uh, for uh, many years, um, I, it, it seems pretty clear to me that what the, the Fed does now and what it's perceived to do is somewhere in between those two. And I'd argue it's closer to com the pure commitment than to pure discretion. It's not there yet, but I, I think it's closer to, to commitment than discretion. And I would take as evidence the stability of inflation over the last couple of decades. I'd also point to um, instances, well, Vol the Volcker disinflation, which was um, not re-optimizing period by period, but was taking some very strong actions aimed at building up a reputation, which is a typical thing you would do to get to a, a commitment equilibrium. And then, moreover, they, in, in the 80s, they took actions uh, in order to stave off inflation scares, actions they didn't really have to take because there wasn't an immediate threat to uh, their employment or inflation goals, but um, wanted to maintain a reputation uh, for having... Um, for being for being willing to stick to a pre-announced um, goal of of lower inflation and a reputation for avoiding that temptation to reoptimize every time. Um, having said that, I think that the, there's um, a ways the Fed could go uh, to improve um, the strength of its um, commitment. I think that. Um, People talk in terms of monetary policy rules. What the Fed does by way of articulating uh, why it does what it does, both in its statements and in its monetary policy report to Congress, is um, feels very much like choosing each period what seems right to balance risks. And so it doesn't convey a sense of commitment. It's, it conveys a sense that, yes, we're choosing every time what we think is the right thing. And you could be forgiven for thinking they're re-optimizing every time. Uh, in addition, I'd point to, there was a discussion earlier about forward guidance language. They were very clear that they were not making a commitment. Mm -hmm. They were very clear that they were forecasting what their future selves would find warranted to do mm -hmm. um, in, and keep interest rates lower. So they weren't binding themselves to do something they wouldn't otherwise want to do. Mm -hmm. So in the monetary policy report to Congress, uh, there's a new section that appeared about a year ago on these Taylor rules, these algebraic uh, formulas. Um, it presents five of them um, and it discusses them, uh, lays out um, the differences to, it explains them very well. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a discussion that's sort of walled off mm -hmm. from the rest of the discussion of policy. It's separate it's, and it's labeled complexities of monetary policy rules. And the theme is uncertainty and there's virtually no discussion of why policy has deviated from the prediction, the indications, the, the recommendations of the vast majority of rules. And you would think something glaring like all the, all of, almost all the rules saying that we should lift off in late 13, early 14, and we stuck around till late 16, you'd think that would get some comment in that section, but it doesn't. And I, I think until the, the, I think the Fed's leaving um, opportunities on the table to enhance their, their commitment to uh, low to price stability uh, by doing more to connect um, to established patterns of behavior. They don't have to pick a given individual mm -hmm. 
algebraic rule, but if they would just say, yes, we respond systematically. You know, when inflation's above our target, we go like more than one for one. We have to do that because otherwise, you know, the real rate doesn't go up and things go haywire. You're preempting so, some of my later questions okay. about which things the Fed should do. Okay. So I want to turn over to you, uh, uh, Frankel, because you've also discussed, you've had this question of like, when we're talking about between rules and discretion, um, there are two separate questions here. It's about to what extent should a central bank be constrained and then which rule should be used if we do that. Can you talk a little bit about to what extent a central bank should be constrained um, before we get into full-on rules? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, in economics, often is that life is a trade-off and the optimal solution is somewhere in between. And I think that's probably true about rules versus discretion. Uh, the, the classic argument for, for rules, I mean, form, maybe it was Milton Friedman's intuition all along, but really uh, formalized in the dynamic and consistency literature, Kidlet and Prescott, and uh, equally important papers, I would argue, by Guillermo Calvo and Barrow and Gordon. But um, that uh, a central bank can say, I'm not going to be inflationary, I'm going to deliver price stability, but it's not credible because they uh, ex post have the temptation to, uh, to, to uh, boost the economy. And so the only way to credibly commit to uh, price stability is to tie your hands through, for example, a rule. I mean, the old days, the gold standard, or uh, uh, monetarism, a fixed rate of growth of the money supply, or inflation, inflation targeting. Um, that's assuming you can you can you can hit those things. And and the the the, whole, the thing that's missing from these models is uh, from the from the dynamic consistency models is shocks. And shocks are very important. Things come along that weren't uh, anticipated. Um, I guess the, the best reference on uh, the intermediate degree of commitment, uh, balancing the advantage of rules versus with discretion was uh, a paper by Ken Rogoff in uh, 1985. But uh, the, the, you, you can easily uh, regret having committed to a rule that seemed sensible ex ante if a shock uh, comes along. That's true of uh, rigid uh, uh, nominal anchors like the, the uh, price of gold or the exchange rate or the money supply or, or, or inflation targeting. Um, but I, I would argue that even uh, looser, uh, uh, I mean, a Taylor rule uh, is a little, is more, more flexible. Even forward guidance, uh, even if it's a kind of forward guidance where you're just giving, uh, sharing your information as your best guess, uh, sometimes called Del Delphic uh, forward guidance as opposed to Odysseus tying his hands to the mat. In all these cases, you constrain yourself to some extent. It's just, a, it's just along a, a spectrum. I think there are cases where uh, uh, the Fed and other central banks have given forward guidance and then have been a little embarrassed when a shock comes along and they're not able to uh, uh, stick to it. I mean, I could give, give you know, lots of examples of failure to hit inflation targets. Someone this morning mentioned the Bank, bank of Japan five years ago. All-out commitment. It's no lack of sincerity. All-out commitment to a 2% inflation target. Well, uh, five years later, they haven't even reached 1%. And it really, uh, uh, and, and lots of other examples like that with, uh, uh, it took ten, U.S. 10 years to hit 2% inflation, basically. Um, and, and the same with uh, other kinds of targets uh, or, or rules. Uh, the, the, the Taylor rule, Joe Gagnon mentioned that uh, if that had been legislated, the Fed would have had to set an interest rate of negative 6%. 
what would they have done? I mean, you know, a, a rule that is written, uh, legislated in Congress, uh, may um, tie the hands uh, uh, of the authorities in a way that uh, just n no one anticipated and everyone comes to regret. Yeah, I want to get into that at some, we'll get into that a little further down the road about which rules, how much constraint, whether from the Fed or from Congress. But I want to get a little bit more texture around what are some of the consequences when we have a central bank who doesn't necessarily follow a rule or uh, is a little bit more discretionary, and uh, how does the marketplace respond to that? John, you've, you've been out there when, when things kind of went awry for, uh, for the markets. What, what does that look like? <laughs> thanks, Lee. And thanks, everybody, for being here. I, I uh, have a little different perspective. I'm not a professional economist. I was a banker for uh, 40 years. I was CEO for 20 years of BB&T. And I got to experience what it looks like in the real world uh, uh, operating under discretionary monetary policy and maybe more important, discretionary uh, regulatory policy. Uh, I'll make one context. I started out as a small business, lower middle market lend lender, traditional businesses, non-financial businesses. And I can tell you what they're looking for is price stability because they're trying to price their products. And, and inflation, changes in prices make it really difficult. Um, you know, in, the, in my perspective, I would not have called the monetary and, and regulatory policies discretionary. I would have called them uh, arbitrary and ambig ambiguous because <laughs> they moved all around and they were different from what the Fed said one day they were going to do the next. Uh, I, I remember back in the early 2000s, uh, you know, that's when Greenspan was running the Fed. We were having a minor correction. And, we got really low interest rates, creating negative uh, real interest rates. And uh, Greenspan says we've got a global savings glut and interest rates are going to stay low forever. Well, if you're trying to run a bank, there's pretty big implications for that, right? So what did we do? Uh, we have an investment portfolio. BB&T always kept excess liquidity. We wanted to be safe and sound. So we extended the maturity of our investment portfolio. We kept with government bonds. What did a lot of other banks do? They extended and bought mortgage-backed bonds, which were more risky. Uh, so they doubled up their risk because, hey, economy's going to do well for a long time, and interest rates are going to stay low. Not long after that, they started raising interest rates, right, <laughs> under Greenspan and then under Bernanke. And the percentage increases were some of the fastest. They didn't go very high, but they were the fastest percentage increases, uh, you know, very fast percentage increases. And then we got a negative, uh, uh, we got an inverted yield curve. And banks borrow short and lend long, and long-term rates are uh, lower than short-term rates, not much fun. But what does that incent people to do when the Fed was still projecting the economy was going to do well, right? But what, did, what did banks do? They increased their risk significantly. And if you look at a lot of the bad loans, they were made the last two years of the cycle. Last two years of the cycle. Um, and then when we had the, uh, the, the actual beginning of the financial crisis, one thing that turned it from a, a correction which we needed into a crisis was the ambiguity of how the regulatory uh, system ha was handled. You know, you fail Wachovia, you save Citigroup, this is Russian roulette going on out here. But the worst thing was a radical tightening of lending standards. Personally, I've been in the business 40 years, I never saw anything like this. In the correction in the early 80s and the early 90s, which I, I went through, what the regulators did was fail the bad banks, but they didn't force the good banks like BB&T, which, by the way, went through the crisis without a single quarterly loss. They didn't force us to tighten our lending standards. This time, because we already had rational lending standards, they radically forced us to tighten our lending standards, and we put thousands of businesses 
out of businesses that we would not have put out of businesses that would have survived if we'd have been able to make them loans. And that's why your monetary policy didn't do much good, because banks multiply the, the base by 10 to, you know, 10 to 1, 9 to 1. You can't raise the base fast enough to make up for crushing the bank, uh, the multiplier. And that was going on in spades. After the crisis got over, uh, they kept the standards tight, tighter than they'd been in 1970 when I joined BB&T. Uh, that's, I mean, very tight lending standards, particularly it's impacted small business, the lower commercial middle market, those kind of standards, not necessarily the capital markets activity. Finally, about two years ago, they, when, basically when Trump got elected, uh, uh, there was, the standards started getting looser, and, you see, and you're seeing better growth and economic growth, and, and the money supply is, is now becoming more effective. Now, one of the interesting challenges today, if all these excess reserves turn into loans, which if we actually went back to rational lending standards, I don't know what that does to inflation. <laughs> it would be a very interesting, a very interesting phenomenon. So uh, editorial comment, having been through this 40 years experience, uh, I believe we would be far better with a private banking system based on a market-based standard. Now, that's, I don't think we can get there from here in any easy way, but I really think people are naive about, here's, I have a lot of empathy for the people of the Federal Reserve. They're very smart people. They're very honest. They're doing their best, but they have an impossible job. What we know is price fixing doesn't work, right? It doesn't work in any market. They're trying to fix the price of the most important commodity, the reserve, world's reserve uh, currency, and trying to fix it uh, uh, based on statistical analysis instead of, of market, market facts, factors. And, and it's, it's the most complicated price in the world. So they, they can't do their job. So I would vote for a private bank system. If we're not going to do that, I think the less discretion we give the Fed, the better off we are. I'd take any rule. Now, I'm personally a proponent of the NG, uh, NGDP rule. Uh, uh, I, but I'll take the Taylor rule, and in contrast to what everybody else argues, I wouldn't give them a lot of discretion. Because if I'm managing an actual institution, the fact that I know there's a formula out there that's going to predict how the Fed's going to act on monetary policy makes it much easier for me to manage my business mm -hmm. uh, and much easier to project the future. And I, I just I think it's naive to believe they've done a good job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they've created a lot of bubbles. <laughs> I'm stepping on Jeff's toes. <laughs> so there seems yeah. to be a, a spectrum of rules that we could choose from here where we have pure discretion on one end and we've got purely private market, market discipline on the other end. And so from that perspective, I'd like to go in and let's talk a little bit about what, some, what, so, what are some of the rules out there. We've talked about several of them today, Taylor rule, NGDP targeting, um, Friedman rule. What are some of the rules that um, seem like they might make more sense than the Fed's current rule, which is mostly an inflation targeting rule, but constrained by their mandate, which is debatable also, it's debatable that that also might be a rule as well, is the mandate a rule. So can we talk a little bit about what are, um, what, what would be a more optimal type of constraint on the Fed if we were to go in that direction? Jeff, you've done some work on this, as have you, Sumner. Well, Frankel. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you, you should have thought about that when you chose the panelists. You got lots of different first names. Um, 
so I have uh, written over the years in favor of nominal GDP targeting, uh, and, and let me just sort of state the the, the first generation and second generation case, case uh, uh, from it. We had from David the uh, the uh, in the previous session the the third generation case of risk risk sharing, but um, the. Uh, uh, it goes back to uh, the heyday of monetarism and the original proponents of nominal GDP targeting said the problem with setting a target for M1 is velocity shocks, shifts in the demand uh, for money, which will leave you end up regretting you committed to a particular rate of growth of M1. And, uh, and uh, if you target nominal GDP, it's just like targeting M1 except you take out the velocity shocks. Uh, and so that's got to be more uh, stable, assuming you can, you can, you can, can do that. Um, and, and you know, you by the end of his for us, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a graph. Uh, by the end of his life, Milton Friedman uh, agreed that he that the money demand was less stable than he had thought. And I think you know, basically, uh, uh, I mean, he won most debates, but I think on the stability of money demand, he, he pretty much uh, lost that one. How how am I going to turn this on? You just click to the side. There you go. Okay, so um, first generation was the, 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 the regime to beat is M1 targeting, and the argument is you, you can eliminate velocity shocks by targeting nominal GDP instead. Second generation is the, the, the status quo, the, the candidate, uh, the, the regime uh, to beat is inflation targeting. I'm going to here represent inflation targeting. Assume you, you, you fix a, you get a price level. The, the the red dot doesn't show up well on a screen that's lit from behind, so it's going to be oh, a little hard to see. Um, sure. Can I stand up and point to it? Or? Isn't that why you have the A's and the B's? Yeah, that's a good point. Here? All right. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, it, He's it, newly it, back in the I'm classroom. Just saying, just saying. <laughs> so, so we have an upward sloping supply curve, a downward sloping demand curve. Probably everybody remembers their economics well enough to know about that. Um, and uh, we have an adverse supply shock, uh, which shifts the aggregate supply curve up to the from the original AS line to the dotted line. What happens, this is where it turns out to make a big difference, which rule you've committed to. Uh, a price level rule or an inflation rule says you stay at the same horizontal level. P is price levels on the vertical axis or inflation rate. So you move from A to B. Well, I have these, these indifference curves where you, you really would like to have both high GDP and price stability. The problem with the inflation targeting rule is that when you have an adverse supply shock, you're going to have a big recession. You take it all in the form of lost output uh, in order to keep the price level from uh, rising. Adverse supply shock, uh, adverse productivity shock, adverse weather shock. I think the adverse... Like today's weather. <coughs> well, the one, that, the one that I'm worried about is the trade war. A trade war is an adverse supply shock. makes us all, less, all lower real, real income. Um, well, this says take it all in the form of a recession, move from A to B. Nominal GDP target says you take the product P times Y, got GDP on the horizontal axis, P on the vertical axis, it's a rectangular hyperbola, is, is uh, the, the aggregate demand curve. It says hold that fixed, that's what nominal GDP targeting does, hold that fixed. In that case, the same adverse aggregate supply shock moves you from A to C, where you take it a little bit in the form of lower income, real income, and a little bit in the form of higher inflation. There's no reason why it should be all lost output or all higher inflation. In general, as I said, you do better uh, somewhere in between. That's kind of the uh, general finding in economics. So uh, that is still, for me, the uh, classic uh, argument in favor of nominal GDP targeting, that it, it, it shares the uh, adverse effect of the 
uh, of the shock. Now that's assuming you can hit the price level target under inflation targeting, and you can hit the nominal GDP target uh, under NGDP targeting. Which is a, a big if at times. No, um, Lacker, did you have a yeah? Comment well, you I, to I add just when I mean when I, I think about nominal GDP targeting, I think about communicating it. And um, maybe I haven't had this experience, but standing in front of a chamber of commerce and trying to explain what the Fed's trying to do. And I, I, to me, it seems like inflation 2% is easier to say than rectangular parabola. Is that what you mean? <laughs> is that what the word for Can I? So, I, I just say, hyperbola. Yeah. <laughs> hyperbola, I'm sorry, I got it. This is an a, 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 economically literate audience. I would not do this in front of a, a town hall meeting. No, but I mean, but more broadly, you know, what to expect for the economy going forward? Well, we're trying to keep inflation 2% and there's going to be a recession yeah. is it's, one thing we could say. And the other, on the other hand, yeah, inflation's going to, you know, right. So it's a little more complicated communication. That's right. Me. I think so it's actually easier. I think it's be... actually easier to communicate. <laughs> Let me give you an example why. So, in 2010, uh, Ben Bernanke announced that the Fed was trying to raise inflation from roughly one percent to two percent. So there's this firestorm of criticism. You know, we're deep in recession. Why is the government trying to raise our cost of living? The average person just can't understand that at all. On the other hand, if Bernanke had said, you know, we've noticed that when uh, nominal or We've noticed that when Americans' incomes rise at 4 or 5% a year, the economy does better than when our incomes are falling. So we're going to try to boost growth in income at that historical trend rate. That, I think, would have been easier for the average person to understand. Higher income sounds good. Higher cost of living sounds bad. And I think the problem with inflation targeting is economists understand that when we're targeting inflation, we don't really, we're not doing it because of the effects on consumers, we're doing it because we think that a stable inflation rate leads to more macroeconomic equilibrium. But the average person doesn't understand inflation targeting that way. They think in terms of the cost of going to the store and buying stuff. And so that makes it hard for it to be a symmetrical uh, target as it's supposed to be under inflation targeting. Um, so I would argue that in some ways, since what the Fed is really trying to do, when Ben Bernanke said, I'm trying to raise inflation from 1% to 2%, he was really saying, I'm trying to boost aggregate demand in the economy to get a faster recovery, and one side effect will be higher inflation, but another side effect will be stronger real growth. Well, then why not just cut to the chase? If you're saying you want to get higher aggregate demand, then define the target in terms of a stable growth in aggregate demand instead of inflation, which could be supply-side inflation, or it could be demand-side inflation, which, as Jeff just pointed out, has radically different effects on the macroeconomy. Mm -hmm. One other co comment on the inflation target. I think it can be really misleading when things are happening in the global economy, improving productivity. There are times when prices probably ought to be falling. And, and certainly with the Chinese and, the, and India and huge amount of people involved in the global economy, I think that's one thing that happened in the early 2000s. You're actually having globally, maybe not in the United States, a massive increase in productivity. So you would probably expect prices to fall. Mm -hmm. so, so what you're really looking for, of course, is real growth, if, that, if that's expressed in nominal terms. I, but, but you can't ignore. I think that happened in the 1920s. You had the introduction of so many new technologies that the Fed's stable rates were effectively increasing inflation. Because, and that leads to people getting more interested in buying houses. <laughs> it, it, it actually mis, misleads calculation. And I think those things are 
unusual, but I certainly think that happened in the 2000s with the Chinese and the Indians getting involved in the global economy. And I think that's, that's why inflation targeting is a little tricky. Yeah, I just want to respond to Scott. I mean, my recollection is that at the time he was communicating about a desire to increase inflation from 1% to 2%. Uh, Chairman Bernanke and a lot of other people on the committee were very strongly committed to, were, were communicating very strongly about a desire to reduce unemployment and improve outcomes. But I take your suggestion, um, constructive one, and take on board and learn that he, he could have framed it as we, that's what we're trying to do, and a byproduct is the inflation. We expect the byproduct to be the inflation rate to come back to our target. Is that what you're saying? So yeah. to, to frame it that way and, yeah, because and, and discuss it in terms of nominal incomes rather than... I think we always have to be cognizant that the public isn't hearing these terms the way we interpret them. I know this from Certainly decades of teaching. and yeah. um, undergrads. Yeah. That's a fair point. And one little quick follow-up in terms of the discussion being rules today. Although nominal GDP targeting and inflation targeting sound sort of parallel, like just two alternative rules you could pick for nominal aggregates, I would argue nominal GDP targeting is actually more rule-like in this sense. If you're targeting inflation, you're almost always implicitly having a more complex rule due to the dual mandate. So yes, we have the 2% inflation targeting, but they also look at output gaps, employment, and so on. With nominal GDP targeting, you can actually think of it as a single goal, and it does really encapsulate the two um, implicit policy goals in the dual mandate into one number. So that allows you to be more precise, more rule-like in your behavior than inflation targeting. And I think you alluded to this, Jeff, where if you're targeting inflation, it might seem like the right target at one point in time, but then at another, it doesn't seem right for various reasons. And so I, I don't think they're just two alternatives, but I actually believe nominal GDP is more rule-like in practice than inflation targeting. Can I, can I ask a question um, of the nominal GDP targeters here? Um, so it, during David Beckwith's presentation, he showed some graphs that invited me to think of policy as setting the nominal GDP growth and shocks determining the division between... Well, it, I have a hard time imagining that. I mean, it, it just seems to me as if shocks are just as likely to push nominal GDP growth in the coming year or quarter away from the committee's target as it is to push the division around? Well, there's, yeah, you're, it could happen. There's, I, I think the answer would be there's two types of shocks. One would be like a supply curve shock, and that's what he's referring to. When you have a supply shock, it just partitions it among prices right. and output. I think what you're referring to is you could have like an unanticipated movement in the aggregate demand curve, say because velocity changes unexpectedly. Uh -huh. And that happens before the Fed is able to stop it. So they actually miss their nominal GDP target. And that's, that gets to the whole question of like instrument rules and what's the best way to actually achieve a given growth in nominal GDP. Um, and you can have a whole debate about, you know, I have my own opinions on that. But, um, but I think that's sort of a separate issue. So any rule is really subject to two questions. One, can you hit the rule or, or will shocks move you away from what you're trying to do, and then is the rule appropriate if you hit it? And I think at least what nominal GDP can do is we can say, well, at least if we can hit the nominal GDP target, it's probably gonna be a better outcome than hitting the inflation target, but it doesn't solve the problem. You're right, there could be a financial crisis shock that pushes nominal GDP off course, and then, but we face that with any target we're aiming for, whether it be inflation or nominal GDP. Can I ask another question? One more. So what, so, <laughs> 
the drift in, in our star, mm. in trend real rates, has been this sort of perplexing thing for the Taylor Rule framework, mm -hmm. but it's kind of easy to accommodate because it's right there. Mm -hmm. So what happens uh, if trend rate of growth of real GDP moves around? Like oh, for a decade, it's too low, and then all of a sudden we get 3% inflation when you, you, know, you sold me a nominal GDP target that I thought was gonna give me the you know, a 2% depreciation in the value of nominal assets over well, time. Well, uh, the argument, and George has a whole book that um, yeah. George Sheldon that talks about this, that essentially nominal GDP growth should be thought of as the real thing, not just the sum of inflation and real growth. In other words, if you think of what we think of the welfare costs of inflation, a lot of them are probably more accurately measured as the welfare cost of high or low nominal GDP growth. And so it's actually not a, a bug, but it's a feature of the system that when productivity growth varies a little bit up and down, and the trend rate will vary over time, inflation moves a little bit in the other direction because the two markets you're, you're trying to stabilize, I think at least, are the financial markets and the labor markets. And those two markets will be more stable with a stable path of nominal GDP and some fluctuation in inflation compared to a stable path of inflation and a volatile nominal GDP. So, I don't view it as a problem if inflation moves a little bit up and down with changes in trend, real GDP growth, because it helps stabilize labor markets and financial markets. So I, 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 the last part, I'd give a slightly different uh, answer to, to Jeff Lacker's question. Um, I don't think of the nominal GDP uh, like M1, like Milton Friedman's M1 rule, that you say it's going to be 3% now forever. Um, and some people think of inflation targeting as it's 2% now and forever. Um, I think of it as uh, if you're going to set a target at a range of one to two years, what should it be? And I'm suggesting for these reasons that nominal GDP is more robust with respect to unexpected shocks than anything else. And, and I would change it occasionally. Um, uh, even if you th we had some discussion about whether 2% is the optimal inflation rate, let's say it is. But um, if, if there's a long-term slowdown in productivity growth or speed up in productivity growth, very gradually over time, I would, I would modify the nominal GDP target. So it's a different, different uh, See, The way people it. have taken on board with Taylor rules and sort of yeah. adjusted it for... That's, that's right. Oh, by the way, I think my, the marking down of the R-star went a little too far, probably. Uh, people are taking too... too there's some cherry-picking of R-star estimates mm -hmm. that yes. went on. I won't name so names. So we've, we've explored NGDP targeting as one rule rather in-depth, and perhaps maybe the conference is leaning this direction anyway. But um, to what extent, though, are these other rules able to help us, help central bankers achieve more optimal monetary policy? I think Peter Ireland had a good way of summarizing sort of what the, uh, what the goals of monetary policy should be stability, growth, job opportunities. So I think you've discussed how NGDP targeting can help achieve some of those things by guiding Fed policy when there are these fluctuations in whether it's aggregate supply shocks or even aggregate demand shocks. Um, are there merits to some other rules that I don't want to leave anyone out? Should we talk a little bit more about the Taylor rule, whether it really would be a helpful guide for policy? Um, well, I mean, I think of the Taylor Rule as the baseline leading contender in central banking circles, despite recent gains made by the nominal GDP targeting idea. There's also price level targeting out there, which is right, a, a right, very, right. Uh, also making a, a, a surge. Um, it, you know, I, I, I think of it in terms of communicating what the central bank's trying to do. I mean, the, the Fed adopted 2% as a target, and that, you know, I, I think about people out there making decisions about 10-year, 20-year, 30-year nominally denominated securities, 
um, you know, making nominal decisions that far in advance, and just the value to them of having some surety of a long-lasting commitment. So I, I, th that, to me, always made me blanch at the idea of temporarily in a recession at the zero bound bumping up the inflation target for a couple of years. Because once you've done that, the cat's out of the bag. You're, you're going to have a hard time convincing everyone that you're not going to do it again ever, you know, if you, make, if you come to that decision. And it'll always be in the back of people's minds. So once you set the precedent of setting 2% and then moving it around, I think you've really, you know, broken a barrier that's going to make it hard to recover the same credibility you might have had otherwise. Uh, so I'm wary of, of rules that have you sort of adjusting a key parameter every, every now and then. Yeah. But I think of the Taylor rule as something that's just a natural way to communicate. When, when activity's weak is measured by this term over here, real rates need to be lower, and when they're strong, they need to be higher. Um, and that's apart from whether employment is a separate mandate or whether our best contribution to maximum employment is low and is low and stable inflation, which was Volcker and Greenspan's formulation. The vocabulary around the Taylor rule fits very well with the current way we talk about our goals for monetary policy. So yeah. I could see that working, but there's um, just to interject. You could, of course, have a, a Taylor rule type system for nominal GDP targeting. It would be a different formula, but it would be a formula <coughs> for adjusting interest rates with the goal of keeping nominal GDP on track. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm not in favor of that. My preference would be a, an instrument rule where policy always has to be set such that the market forecast of nominal GDP growth is, say, within 1% of the policy goal. Mm -hmm. Some rule that's more market-based. Mm -hmm. But um, I just want to point out that if you favor the Taylor rule and like that approach of a mathematical formula for setting interest rates, it can be reconstructed for nominal GDP targeting. The specific one Taylor did was for an inflation target with a dual mandate aspect to it. I mean, it, it, it really is quite uh, compatible. <clears throat> Taylor rule is more operational, instrumental uh, rule, as was, was pointed out. In John Taylor's original article, he had equal weight on output and inflation. So, right. so if you're looking ahead for a year, it actually is a nominal GDP targeting. And then on the other hand, uh, lots of uh, inflation targeters, uh, flexible inflation targeters, think of the Taylor rule as the way of hitting their long run, uh, uh, the short run way of hitting their long run inflation target. So mm -hmm. I don't think there's a, they're exactly in necessarily in competition. Um, we're going to open it up to audience questions pretty soon, but I've got one more question related to what, what um, so to what extent should Congress get involved in doing anything related to implementing these rules? I know, John, you've talked about having a very specific rule because it helps provide certainty to the marketplace. So what role does Congress have to play in the, uh, in, in the realm of rules? I'm skeptical of Congress doing anything. So <laughs> <laughs> I would hope that the Fed would impose a rule on itself because unless you make a constitutional amendment, I'm not even sure then the Fed can cheat. Mm -hmm. I mean, they do it all the time. Uh, but I think if they had a, a stated rule themselves that other people could look at, at least it would be more transparent and you could at least judge them better because I think they get away with a lot of mistakes mm -hmm. and, and people don't judge them. I want to go back just a little bit off your question, but I want to go back to a point that I think is very under-discussed by monetary economists, and I keep saying it over and over again. You cannot separate monetary policy from regulatory policy mm -hmm. since the Fed runs both of them. Banks multiply the monetary base 10 to 1. Regulatory policy has more impact on GN 
uh, uh, on, on in GDP than monetary policy in my experience. For example, what was going on in the early 2000s before the recession was a radical reduction in bank lending standards. Some of that driven by banks getting over-aggressive, some driven by the Fed actually encouraging banks to take more risk in the subprime lending market and putting pressure on them to take more risk, and others encouraged by the regulators not paying any attention to the bad loans that small banks were making in particular, but big banks were making. And we saw that as competitors. We saw people making stupid loans. And the, and the regulator, and we, you can argue whether we should have a regulatory structure, but if you got one, there's implication in the market that the regulators are looking at this stuff. We could see these people doing crazy stuff, and, and nobody was paying any attention to it. I think so, that should be a topic for our next conference, monetary <coughs> policy and financial regulatory and, policy. And, and then when you change, so if you loosen the regulations, you get much more of a multiplier. And all of the M3, M4 stuff was changes in the, the regulation. Yeah. And you had a comment on the Congress question, right? Yeah, yeah. I want to uh, comment on the idea of Congress or politicians more generally uh, reining in the, the Fed. Um, I think, uh, and we've had a lot of talk about that, the audit the Fed and, and all this. Uh, and I think it would be a huge mistake. I think the independence of the central bank is very important. It did originally follow from the Kidland-Prescott dynamic inconsistency uh, argument. I would claim that... Uh, Evidence of the last 10 years uh, suggests that if monetary policy were less under the control of the Fed and more under the control of the politicians, we would have more pro-cyclical monetary policy. It would exacerbate the swings. 2010, 2011, the uh, unemployment rate was above 9%. You had all these attacks on the Fed, just to name one, President, uh, then Donald, his private citizen Donald Trump said uh, this Fed's uh, reckless uh, lending was going to lead to uh, record inflation. That was in 2011 when the unemployment rate was above 9%. And there were a lot of congressmen and a lot of, uh, of res highly respected economists who said similar things. Fast forward to 2018, unemployment is well below 4%. And Donald Trump is saying uh, the Fed's out of control. Monetary policy is, 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 is much too tight. They're raising interest rates. Rates. That suggests to me that if the politicians get control of monetary policy, they're going to be easy, tight, easing monetary policy when unemployment is but very low. That my question, because it's not necessarily Congress having control of monetary policy, but what role could they play in implementing a rule? But, um, yeah, and so then I'll open it up to, well, I'll go ahead and start perusing the audience. While example of what you might have been referring to is the Form Act, which just required the Fed to pick a rule, send it in, they could deviate. All they'd have to do is comment on and explain on why. And it's something the Fed could have done. I mean, it, and it could do with regard to the rules it now publishes in the monetary policy report. I think it'd be preferable for the Fed to make what efforts it can find to make to be more forthcoming um, and uh, connect its day-to-day, -day, you know, meeting-to-meeting policymaking with uh, these documented statistical patterns and these normative rules. Um, without handing over the reins to the House Financial gotcha. Services Committee. Um, uh, we'll go on and take this question here first, and then, um, Anthony, you saw the second question, right? Yes. Uh, was David, and then, yeah, so go ahead. It was a great, great, great discussion. Um, and, you know, I think the, the priority of trying to explain policy to the public in a way that they understand, that they can support, that they can help prevent political interference actually kind of at the foundation of, 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 of operational independence of the central bank. The, the history in monetary economics is price stability. 
unit of account. Kind of that's what we teach in kind of our, you know, monetary economics or macro 101 is stable unit of account. Um, you know, go back to the Employment Act of 1946. It kind of refers to stable purchasing power. You know, the, the, the and these concepts are, are cross central I should, banks. I, I should have put moderator's prerogative oh. on questions. Are questions <laughs> that end with a question mark? Okay, um, but so, please thank you. I, I, so it's a, maybe it's a question for all four of you, but it it just seems to me that the simplest way to frame the Fed's mandate is that its ultimate goal is stable prices. Oh. Comment. I agree. Ultimate goal, stable prices? Uh, I don't agree. <laughs> 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 there you have it. Um, yeah, just a comment about how to make nominal GDP targeting, and I'll turn it into a question. The rules of the house here. <laughs> but I mean, as, as was mentioned, nominal GDP targeting can be framed as nominal income targeting, and then even a step down, nominal wage targeting targeting a wage index, I think that would be very accessible to someone, an average person. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Could that be the whole wage bill or the wage rate? I'll, 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 uh, I'll say that yeah, I think nominal wage targeting in the sense of targeting an index of average nominal wages across the economy would work fairly well. It'd be sort of like nominal GDP targeting, I think. Uh, but I think it would also be more controversial and um, for technical reasons, I favor nominal GDP targeting. I think that'd be a little easier to implement. The gentleman had his hand up over there. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, uh, Mark Tenney, Mathematical Finance Company. I'm involved in calibrating what are called economic scenario generators for life insurance companies. And they generate 10,000 stochastic scenarios of interest rates and other variables and run monthly cash flows through their systems for like 30 years. And so we, we've heard today all these different ideas about monetary policy and people who claim that they've proven it and so forth. It seems to me there needs to be a risk manager on the Fed that's running 10,000 agnostic scenarios that cover all these ranges of outcomes. And the Fed policy board should be limited. They should have to basically be subjected to this risk manager who says you can't go that far in this direction. You can only go so far. What your banker? Risk what do you management think rule? I, so I, I, the, um, I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. The briefing materials that the staff prepares for the FOMC include um, copious simulations, stochastic simulations, like you, like you suggest. This would be agnostic. You mean scientific? <laughs> I think we'll, we'll continue this conversation <laughs> over beverages yeah, I, think, I think it requires Can we go drink? way in the back to Peter Ireland? Way back there. Oh, Peter's here. I, know. Yeah, I, I do. We, we neglect the far back because the lights up here prevent us from seeing. Thank you. Thanks. I have a question for Jeff Racker. Like you, I consider the Fed's reluctance to make um, consistent reference to a specific monetary policy rule a lost opportunity for exactly the reason you say. It's an ideal communication tool. Take it present. FOMC members say, well, we think we're going to raise the funds rate three more times, let's say. But we all know that's not what they mean. What they mean is contingent on the inflation picture evolving as we think it will three more times. But 
if inflation accelerates more rapidly, there are going to be more interest rate increases. Or if it falls back below target, we'll have to slow down. It's always hard to put, you know, to say what's in, you know, your debating opponent's head. But from your years on the FOMC, do you have any insight what the hang-up is? Because it does seem almost like a free lunch in, in terms of communicating more effectively. That's a really good question. Um, and let me just sort of a side comment. I think that the, the dot plots have, to some extent, um, while they're a good thing, they've also sort of reduced the sense of, they've impaired the, the Fed's ability to convey the contingency of future policy. But yeah, I agree. I think that the Fed ought to be talking about the path of policy as as highly contingent and explaining exactly how over the next year it's going to depend, you know, what will make them slow. So I, what I think the impediment is, is the attraction of preserving optionality, preserving flexibility. I think, I, I think that ends up trumping clear communications on many uh, in, on a lot of dimensions and a lot of occasions within the bank so within the fed and and it's 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 just ingrained i think in the institutional something about the institutional incentives lead policymakers to want to preserve optimality but i optionality but i think part of it is also obscure you know it, it also makes um, being a bit obscure, cultivating a mystique also attractive in order to be able to deflect criticism later. I think that's the position yourself to be able to deflect criticism later. So I think that's the hang up. I would just give a much more straightforward, uh, you don't need psychology or institutional uh, sociology. Um, if you commit to an inflation target, if you commit to an M1 target, if you commit to a DOTS, uh, uh, you know, forward guidance or to an unemployment threshold, there's a good chance you're going to end up regretting it later because a shock will come along, a supply shock, a velocity shock, a, a labor force participation rate shock, a productivity shock. It usually has, and then you end up regretting what it is you, you committed to. Yeah, I mean, no one's talking about somebody, the Fed saying, we're going to do this come hell or high water. They're saying we expect to have the following pattern, past pattern of behavior, guide our behavior, and if we don't, if we stray from that, we're going to explain ourselves. It's committing to explaining yourself. It's That's not fine. committing to That's fine, your but it's very different than legislating a rule that, that you then have to go before Congress. Way, way, both those two in the way back row, um, the gentleman on my right and then the one on the left, and then um, I should have sent one of you to one of these closer folks here. Um, at, yeah, actually, Nathan, would you come back to um, the lady in yellow down here? And then Alex up there, you can hand yours. So Alex. Thank you. Uh, Alex Guola, Joint Economic Committee. I uh, wanted to uh, inquire if you had any preferences for a level target, whether a price level or for inflation target growth rate. Uh, same as applied to NGDP, because that wasn't uh, covered. Thank you. Level versus level growth? For me. <laughs> level. I mean, both, whether it's the price inflate versus inflation versus level of nominal GDP versus rate of change, my answer is the same. There, there's some... It's, the level proposal is, is theoretically attractive. It's sort of clever. It gets expectations working in the right direction, provided it's credible, provided people believe you're really going to make up a, a loss in one direction by going even farther in the future. And uh, part of my general theme here, I just think it's too hard in practice to uh, hit these targets. And I just don't think that that they are credible, the, the, the price level target or the nominal GDP level target. I know, uh, just depart from many of my fellow economists. Yeah. On that. I'm skeptical about the ability to induce a dependence 
of inflation expectations on past inflation realizations implied by uh, price level targeting. Um, and I, I, I um, am dubious about explaining to a chamber of commerce <laughs> that what we want for inflation in the next couple of years is two plus X because we missed by X last year. Oh, so the goal I'm is to you. get the marketers in the room with the monetary policymakers <laughs> to figure out how to communicate. Okay. Um, the lady here in yellow um, and, 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 and the gentleman back there. You, um, gentleman back there, you go first and then we'll do the thank, lady in Thank yellow. you. Ben so, uh, just a question to the four. What do you think is more, uh, you feel more certain about being able to measure the inflation or the nominal GDP? Because many of us really have uh, that uncertainty which, that which is, is inflation being measured as it should or measure? not. I think nominal GDP should be easier to measure because you don't have to make dollars. Judgments about quality changes and things like that. But, the, that, but there is this problem that nominal GDP is revised uh, and, and inflation is not, which is a little bit awkward for, for, for us nominal GDP targeters. Gotcha. Um, and this question here might have to be our last question. I apologize. I'll see if we can fit yours in, too. Um, Una MacDonald, independent consultant. Um, why not consider Congress following the practice, the UK practice, whereby if the inflation level goes above the 2% target, the governor of the Bank of England has to write an open public letter to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. <laughs> Uh, it is a public letter. Oh, open letter for when they yeah. miss their that target. That was the original. I mean, it all started in New Zealand. That was the original idea. And the original idea, they, the guy got, the governor would get fired or get his pay docked if he didn't, didn't, didn't hit it. But that is how we how monetary theorists like to think of the pure version of an inflation. I, I propose going beyond that and have uh, the Fed report periodically to Congress, uh, say once a year, as to the outcome of its previous monetary policy decisions. Were the previous monetary policy decisions too expansionary or too contractionary? And then provide Congress with the metrics that it uses to make that judgment, specific metrics, inflation, unemployment, show how they came to the conclusion that previous monetary decisions had either been too expansionary or too contractionary. Making That's the sort of accountability that would, in my view, be better than some of the proposals that have been out there in Congress. Confession and atonement. Yeah. But, but by the way, Britain does keep missing it, has kept missing its inflation target despite that. Uh... I like her idea. Uh -huh. um, last question right here. Uh, Chris Englund, CPA. It's short. It will be. Uh, all targeting is uh, central planning. And um, my question, though, is why can't, instead of having adjusting inflation up and down to keep a targeted GDP, why don't we just have a stable, uh, stable dollar? And if there is a recession or a boom or a bust, the free market will, will work itself out and it'll be corrected quickly instead of trying to manipulate it artificially by central planning. I think this is a good question for John Allison. Private, private markets. <laughs> I, I fundamentally agree. So. <laughs> well, who stabilizes the dollar? What is this idea that's going to stabilize all by itself? Yeah. I, don't, I don't understand. That's, that's Look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, is completely no government. You think call that a stable currency? Actually, a stable dollar is not a free market. In a free market, the value of any sort of commodity or asset goes up and down with market conditions. If you're stabilizing the value of the dollar, that's like stabilizing rents in New York. I mean, it may be a good idea, but whatever it is, it's not a free market. You have a federal government keeping something stable. 
So I think on that note, it seems we'll have a lot of lively what discussion the during now, the reception. However, if you will bear with me for just one moment, I beg you, please. Um, I have several thank yous I do need to um, say because uh, an event like this, of course, requires a lot of people. So please let me just go through a few of them very quickly. Of course, to our panel. You can thank our panel. And then all of our panelists today, of course, and moderators, we really appreciate you lending your expertise and talent. Without it, of course, this wouldn't be possible. I also need to thank our conference team who helped put together this great event and the great food you've already enjoyed and will continue to enjoy. Um, I definitely need to thank Jim Dorn, who has run this conference for 36 years. Um, thank you, Jim. And um, I... Congressman Henserling earlier today was right. Um, I, think, I think Jim did keep monetary policy alive in D.C. when it really was not cool before the crisis. So thank you, Jim. Uh, I do need to thank my research assistant, Tyler Wordy. I owe him a thank you from many conferences I forgot to thank him for. Without him, half of the work of our center would not be possible, and I mean that literally. He is amazing. Thank you so much, Tyler. Um, and then I also need to thank our sponsors, especially the George Edward Durrell Foundation. Um, they have supported this conference for a number of years, uh, and we are truly grateful for them helping to bring these ideas to you all. Um, one other announcement. We, the papers from this conference will be released in next spring spring summer edition of the Cato Journal. So the final papers will appear there. You have the preliminary papers in your packets, uh, but please stay tuned for that. And I think without further ado, we can now all go enjoy a wonderful drink and some more conversation. Thank you.